0: I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show tonight is There Is No More Distance, the films of Chantal Ackerman. Opening music is Little Girl Blue by Sonia Vieter-Atherton off of her album of Nina Simone songs. Atherton's on cello and she's joined by Bruno Fontaine on piano and Laurent Kraif on percussion. All of our music for this program will come from this album. Sonia Vieter-Atherton has been present in much of Chantal Ackerman's work since the 1980s, whether on soundtracks or as the subject of an extended documentary showcase. A better title for this show might be Screening Women, suggested by tonight's guest, Janet Bergstrom, in an essay on Ackerman for sight and sound. Or perhaps we might call it, Look What I've Done With Your Name, a response by Ackerman to her father's disappointment that she had no children. This comes directly from Ackerman during an interview conducted in 2011 while discussing a kind of loss or erasure of the religious and community traditions of her Jewish father and mother. Her mother survived Auschwitz as a young girl, but lost her parents in the Nazi death camp, something she never spoke of with Ackerman. Exile and loss of home are major themes in her work to set alongside those of the status of woman in society. As Bergstrom writes, the films of Chantal Ackerman demonstrate a motivating interest in the status of the representation of woman, her desire, her self-image, the image others create of and for her. Ackerman's films have shown different solutions to the question, who speaks, and it may well be that any given answers will always be reductive. But were the questions about the representational status of women so urgently posed during the 1970s ever resolved? I think not, because I still hear them asked by successive generations of students. When considering how we might try to cover the artistry and influence of someone who worked as much as Ackerman for so many years in films and television and art installments, it makes sense not to try to do too much. Instead we'll take a look at four films, while possibly touching on some others Saut Maville, Jean Diamant, and I'll ask Janet if she minds giving us the whole title later, From the Other Side, and her last film, No Home Movie. When there are over 40 films on the books and much more other work, I know that's going to limit us a little bit. To help with that rather large task, we are joined by Janet Bergstrom. Bergstrom is a professor of cinema and media studies at UCLA who's followed Chantal Ackerman's work closely since 1976. She's working on an archivally-based study of F.W. Murnau's career and a visual essay for the DVD of Sternberg's The Salvation Hunters. Welcome to Interchange, Janet Bergstrom.
1: Hello. Happy to be with you. Thanks for inviting me, Doug.
0: My pleasure. Uh, Let's uh, start at the beginning, I suppose, or or close to the beginning. Uh, I guess the 15-year-old Chantal Ackerman uh, thought at some point she wanted to maybe be a writer, but then she happens into a movie uh, movie theater and saw a film that would change her life.
1: That's right. And Chantal, who I'm going to call by her first name because I met her on many occasions. Chantal told the same story exactly the same way many, many times in interviews and in front of audiences. Uh, she had a dim view of movies. She, didn't, she thought they were stupid. Uh, she keeps bringing up The Guns of Navarone. As, uh, that's what she thought movies were. <clears throat> and um, so she went with some friends to a mall uh, to a movie, any movie. And she remembers for sure that she was 15, because she had to sneak in, uh, because this particular movie required that you had to be 16 years old or older. It was a film by Godard, Jean-Luc Godard, uh, and the name of the film is Pierrot Le Fou. I'm sorry, but in English it's always called by the French title, and uh, Pierrot is like a, um, an affectionate maybe, way of referring to somebody called Pierre. LeFou is a crazy person. Um, But it's a film in which uh, she said, you know, she was asked many times. Okay, so she, she went with this bunch of kids into this movie, and then she felt thunderstruck. And in describing how she felt afterwards, she felt, I can't even tell you exactly what it was about that movie that made such a big impression on me, except I felt like the film was talking to me. It felt like the film was talking to one person. And that's the kind of sensation, that kind of direct address, uh, but the kind of sensual direct address uh, that was really motivating her um, her whole life. I would say she kept coming back to Godard uh, again and again and different ones of his films um, because actually they all do that. Hmm. So um, that's, you know, so she was 15. It was 1965. That movie had just come out in that mall. She went in. She saw it. She came out. But she was still in high school. And then. she thought about it. She didn't make a film the next day. I mean, she wasn't with people who knew how to do that, and she didn't know how to do that, but she got that experience and that's what she wanted to do um, She tried she's from Brussels, and um there's a film school in Brussels uh, so she entered that film school uh she managed to get in even though she wasn't really. You know, she sort of was really good at talking her way into things. <laughs> she got herself into the film school, but she only stayed for a few months, she tells us, because um, in the first year, students were required to take general kinds of subjects, and she wanted to just make a movie right away. So she walked away from the film school, but being in that environment showed her what people making films Look like, you know, what they were doing, um, what a movie camera looked like, what a flatbed looked like, uh, that kind of environment. And she met some people. And uh, then, only a few years later, three years later to be specific, she decided, okay, I'm ready. I want to make a film uh, with, you know, no money, basically. Uh, So by then, she was 18. Not only did she decide she wanted to make a film, she decided she wanted to make a film in 35 millimeter. Okay, today, everybody's thinking digital. But real movies, you know, 35 millimeter is an expensive professional film gauge. And you need, especially then, you needed a professional camera in order to shoot in 35 millimeter. Um, She borrowed a camera, she borrowed a camera operator. I mean, she talked somebody into helping her who could operate the camera. She plays the only character in the movie herself. She wrote the script. She edited afterwards. And she created this uh, 13-minute film called *Sotma ma vie, Uh which is, you know, it's hard to translate exactly. It means blow up sometimes it's called blow up town this is another one of those titles they never translate (laughs) blow up town it really means blow up my town but um, sometimes it's sote comma ma view which would be blow up my town (laughs) or it could be blow up my town you know
0: (laughs) yeah so she's 18 at the time this is 1968 she's made her own film the film itself I, I think it's necessary to talk a little bit about. It's a mesmerizing film that uh, I think we'll have to talk about how it um, perhaps haunts those of us who watch her movies and then see how uh, life ends as well for her. Um, It's um, uh, a movie about uh, her killing herself. Or I guess yeah, it's you about don't know other that things. At the well, I've given it away. Those of you who haven't seen it, I apologize. That's terrible <laughs> to do. Uh, it is available on the YouTubes, so <laughs> you can, you could go see it. But you know how it's going to end now. I feel terrible.
1: Well,
0: yeah. Oh, no, no. Well, um, it's important to you. Might suspect it's going to end that way as she's taping shut the door and windows and turns on the gas. And if you know what the title means. You might know what it what might be headed that way as well.
1: Well, not necessarily, because "so" t- could just mean um, jump. No. Okay. And like wake up.
0: Oh, okay. Well, this is a wake up call. Perhaps. It,
1: it, it's not necessarily the word for blowing up.
0: You know? <laughs> okay, I wouldn't have known one way or the other. I suppose, but the the movie is her um, basically going into an apartment, a tiny little apartment, and this this also continues throughout her career as well, this kind of confined space of the, is this what you'd call the mise-en-scene?
1: Mise-en-scene. Okay, first of all, it's important to stress for anybody who's seen any of her other films that the style of this film is different from all of the other ones. So Chantal Ackerman became really known for a kind of um, compositional balance and equilibrium and a kind of certainty of where to put the camera in um, a frame in a way and um, to have a rhythm going on within that frame um, such that it's very clear that the camera is like an observer. Um, She doesn't have shot reverse shot very much uh, and to begin with really not at all. This film, on the other hand, is very unstable visually. Even though it was a 35-millimeter camera, somebody must have been holding it. It was heavy at the beginning because um, she goes into her apartment, but before she gets into the confined space that you mentioned that's very important, um, you can see that that little apartment is in one of these anonymous-looking, high-rise buildings that's very reminiscent of Godard films like two or three things I know about her is all about these life inside these uh, you know sort of dehumanizing complexes that are being built up on the outskirts of Paris. So anyway there's this tilting of the camera instability of the camera style is completely different. But subject wise yeah there's a lot in common with all of you know all of the films.
0: Well she is young at the time so I suppose uh, we uh, maybe uh, would just sort of Think about that in terms of trying to understand what she's doing as an 18-year-old. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. I'm speaking with Janet Bergstrom, a professor of cinema and media studies at UCLA, about the films of the late Chantal Ackerman. Um, so, Ma uh, Maville is a. Um, it's a. I suppose it's a film that, as as I've said, and as uh, you know. Um, at the end of 65 years and 40 plus films, et cetera, you look back on it. Gives we have the advantage of looking back on it as the beginning point that may um, give us a future of the filmmaker herself. The the um, but the, let's let's go ahead and skip on then uh, Janet to what I suppose everyone calls her masterpiece. had seven years later, 1975. Ah, uh, we um, we have what Jay Hoberman in the Village Voice named the nineteenth greatest film of the twentieth century. I'm sure other people would put it in different places, but it's definitely uh, seen as the first masterpiece of the f- feminine in cinema by the New York Times. Is that? I mean, is that something that you'd call it? Is I'm not sure what um, a masterpiece of the feminine is.
1: Well, in the feminine. Oh, thank you. Like in the feminine uh, voice, oh, or okay. in the feminine. Okay. Like as if the feminine were a language.
0: Oh, okay. Gotcha.
1: Um, I, think, I think that that's the sense of it. That's what it was called in Le Monde, actually, in okay. the French newspaper, front-page headlines, first masterpiece in the feminine, mm. history of cinema. Le Monde is a very, um, you could say it's sort of like the New York Times, except more left, mm. and um, at the time, no pictures, uh, a very kind of staid paper, And to put that on the front page was a big deal. It got her, you know, instant international recognition and she had already gotten big recognition at the Cannes Film Festival when she showed it. It's over three hours long. It's three hours and 20 minutes. And yeah, it is a masterpiece. And in the feminine is the thing that throws a lot of people um, when they see it. Uh, It's it, it goes by remarkably quickly when you're watching it. It doesn't feel long uh, because it's. Well, I guess I could say you know. Okay, Jean Delmont. The fo- the full title, by the way, um, is it has this long title that's usually not used, and it's Jean Dielman, who's a, a Belgian housewife uh, widow. Um, who lives with her uh, high school aged son in in a very nicely appointed um uh, kind of old fashioned style apartment. <clears throat> Not one room. It's it's nice. And um and the title is her address. Her address is twenty three K de Commerce and then the zip code in Brussels. Mm-hmm. K de Commerce means the street or the the K, the whatever. Of commerce, um maybe it does have something to do with commerce. It definitely is another sign that Ackerman is in her in Brussels, and you know it's a Belgian film um, Well, let me talk about this for a few more minutes, but I really want to talk about what happened in between view <clears throat> that's so Erratic looking visually, mm-hmm. and Jeanne Dillman, which is so incredibly accomplished at the level of mise en scène, at the level of control of the camera, lighting, color, rhythm within the frame. She has one of the greatest actresses ever in French film history as the lead character. Her name is Delphine Seyrig. Mm-hmm. Um, she, w- you might have seen her in last year at Marion Badge or the Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie or another Rene film called Muriel um, she was you know, at the height of her fame when she agreed to make this no budget movie with an all woman crew by the way uh, that turned out to be a problem but Ackerman was and Riga as well and this is the age of feminism this is the age of you know, women should be working with women to produce something that's going to be woman-oriented. That turned out to be, you know, and I lived through this period, too, so I, I know this really well. I mean, this was a great idea in principle, but it didn't necessarily work out that way. So, in fact, with Jean Dillman, it worked out great. With Delphine Seyrig and Chantal, and her camerawoman, woman, Bebet Mangold, who's just fabulous.
0: Hmm. We're going to have to take a break right there. I'm sorry. We'll come, we'll come back to Jean D'Ilman when we uh, come back from the break. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show tonight is about the films of Chantal Ackerman, whose 1975 Jean D'Ilman uh, was called the first masterpiece of in the Feminine, thank you, uh, In the Feminine in Cinema. My guest uh, by telephone, Janet Bergstrom, a professor of cinema and media studies at UCLA, who's followed Ackerman's career and written about her work since 1976. Uh, when we come back, more about Jean Dielman. The music at the break is Black Swan by Sidney Veeder-Atherton from her album in tribute to Nina Simone. Stay with us for more about the films of Chantal Ackerman when Interchange returns on WFHB. Welcome back. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our show tonight is uh, about the films of Chantal Ackerman. Our guest is UCLA Cinema and Media Studies professor Janet Bergstrom. In the previous segment, we spoke about Ackerman's first film, Salt Maville, uh, which sometimes is translated as Blow Up My Town, but it's Uh, not exactly a right translation. Uh, She made that at age 18, and then we began speaking about her universally acclaimed masterpiece, 1975, Jean D'Ilman. In this segment, um, we're going to go a little deeper into Jean D'Ilman, and I want to ask you, Janet, first before we start, if they when we're talking about these films, and I know you've you're, um, uh, studied them, written about them, thought about them quite a bit, and then in, in the space of our radio interview here, we can't quite get to everything we want to, but as this is the masterpiece, let's try to stick with it. And I'd like to ask you how we need to talk about it if we're uh, wanting to preserve a viewer's Uh, first impression or second or third. I've uh, watched it myself uh, and then watched it uh, a few pieces here and there again. I went back and looked at it and then I've read many things that said you're going to see and feel and understand more multiple times as you watch it. This is true, I think, of much of art. How should we talk about it here? What are the things that we can talk about? Do we give anything away as we talk about it? Is it okay to do so?
1: Well, I don't know. You already told (laughs) <laughs> that you know, she kills herself at the uh,
0: end. Uh, she, did I say that already? So um, for th- didn't I know? didn't say it for this film. I said that about Solt Maville. I didn't say anything about Jean Dillman. I know. Oh, so it's okay if we go ahead and and tell the end of well, things now. or How do you feel about oh,
1: it? You're the you're the host.
0: I am the host. Um, it's uh, I'm not sure. I, I kind of don't know how to talk about it. If okay, we, I have a, yeah. I have a
1: slightly different idea. Okay, go. <laughs> so um, in order to you know, so you could say. Sort of somewhat crassly, Jean Delmont. It's three days in the life of a middle-class housewife <clears throat> who spends most of her time inside her apartment, uh, has a very very fixed routine, as in obsessive compulsive, um, but and who uh, receives a male client, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, each afternoon who pays her when she leaves. Uh, They exit into her bedroom uh, for a bit, and so we realize that um, she is engaged in prostitution each day, but that doesn't really interfere with the rest of her routine, cooking in particular. Uh, This happens, well, they're in the bedroom, the potatoes are boiling for dinner, and um, her son comes home, they have a routine, and that routine gets disrupted, the disruption happens day client with client two, day two, and um, leads toward a kind of um, more and more elliptical presentation of her day that's unbelievably well controlled, the sense of rhythm and all of that. Uh, So we see somewhat different things. Everything has sort of collapsed because it's as if we already know what she does every single day even though we've only seen really one day of that. And uh, she ends up, you know, um, killing her, you know, the third client. And then it doesn't, with the scissors. And it doesn't end there. Then uh, it's very important, actually, that um, she doesn't turn the lights back on in the apartment as the apartment is getting dark and we know that her son is going to come home from school um relatively soon she sits at the dining room table she's you know the cameras up uh, across from her and we just watch sort of lights flickering from outside and she sits with a completely unreadable expression um not dramatic not hysterical not anything like that just unreadable and i think that maybe lasts for 10 minutes So at any rate, um, in order to understand why that film is so great based on such a, you know, mm, uh, dismal plot description, you really actually have to see it. And Ackerman says this about all of her films, whether they're more narrative or less narrative. and that's really the sense in which she thinks about her films it's not like she has documentaries and she has fiction films she has films that are more narrative and less narrative hmm. and um, what she wants is for you to experience the film which is exactly her starting point when she was so influenced by Pierre on the fou it she felt the experience and she lived the film through on its own time and on its own its own terms. That's what she's striving for in her films, and she did it perfectly in Jeanne Dielman. I mean, it's perfect. In order to get to that, I just want to mention that um, <clears throat> if you get the Criterion DVD, which I highly recommend, there's a really essential extra feature on there that's a 69-minute video uh, that was shot by Sammy Frey, another one of the big actors of the French New Wave and a lot of Godard films, and everybody else's films. Um, he was Delphine Seyrig's partner at the time. And uh, the way they made the film was every morning, Chantal and Delphine would rehearse for four hours, let's say. And this was all <clears throat> put on video by Sammy Frey. Chantal worked from a script, literally line by line, and she would rehearse delphine's movements gesture by gesture No, do that a little slower No, do that a little higher No, do that a little bit and they would get it until the timing was exactly exactly and the framing of the camera was exactly what ackerman wanted you wouldn't know that when you watch the film you would think well you know, this, by the way, this was not shot in a studio. This was shot in a real apartment, which means big constraints. Um, Babette Mangold used a BNC camera, Mitchell, uh, which is a huge, you know, relatively very large 35-millimeter camera for this. Um, she said, we had a star, Delphine Seyrieg. This was Chantal's big chance. The image had to be perfect, and it's perfect so I, the only other thing I want to mention in advance uh that I hope your viewers will take to heart our listeners is that in order to get from Somaville, which is a brilliant film on its in its own way, but technically far from it um and to Jean Dillman, which is also thirty five millimeter but wanting a completely professional look um Ackerman had decamped from brussels for a number of years and gone to new york city and lived with and you know like absorbed completely the life of the new american cinema especially the films of michael snow influenced her and the avant-garde theater scene as well babette Mangel was one of the most important photographers still photographers of that scene and that's where they met in new york um And she, you know, talked about that a lot, about how she learned that film could be a language. She learned that from the New American Cinema. Warhol, Michael Snow, Brackage, people like that. And it completely reshaped her idea again. Like, this was the second big thing after the Godard film was in New American Cinema in New York. So she had that sense that, well, a film doesn't have to be any particular length. A shot doesn't have to be any particular length. You can go for a long time without showing much of anything. I mean, think about Warhol. Think about sleep, you know, or empire or something like that. So those were things that she managed to, I mean, she really brought together two completely different traditions. And Jean Dielman. you know, like, wonderfully, she brought the New American Cinema together with the French New Wave or kind of new narrative cinema in France.
0: Mm. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. I'm speaking with Janet Bergstrom, professor of cinema and media studies at UCLA about the films of the late Chantal Ackerman. So uh, the the um, you're stressing the sort of formal aspects of the movie as well. And, uh, it seems as though even the script has a a very strict formalism to it as well. Is there, um, is the content uh, as important, or does, um, I know, I think that she says somewhere about the uh, devotedness or the loving nature of all these activities as being a feminist response as well.
1: Yeah. So the fact that um, it's, you know, it's no accident, what shall we say? That uh, she's focusing on a woman. It's a woman's story. Number one, it's a woman's story inside her own apartment, where she wouldn't be seen. It's not a woman out on the streets, actively en- engaging with other people. You know, it's not that kind of a plot. It's a kind of, and what in most movies would be a non-plot. Um, most of what Jean Dielman actually does in her apartment would be cut out of um, a lot of other movies if, you know, this had a more normal plot. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's about her experience. But, you know, you have to realize that um, in those days there were women who there were there were, you know, like quite a few women, let's say, not hundreds, but quite a few women who wanted to make a feminist film they ended up doing was making a film that was the same shape as a any other film it's just that it had a female protagonist instead of a male protagonist Mm -hmm. what chantal wanted to do and what she did do and that's why it was like so perfectly integrated in so many ways was she had a female protagonist but it's not an like an anti-hero or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that's why the murder is really de-dramatized. Um, so it's feminine in the sense that it's a woman's gestures that she remembered from her mother. Hmm. I mean, or her grandmother, as she says sometimes. That she, Where did she get the sense of the perfect rhythm for making... Um, you know, meatloaf, which we see, for instance. Um, she got that from watching, as a little girl, watching over and over again, her mother doing that same thing in the kitchen. Where did she get the sound of Jean Daelman's high heels walking back and forth on a wood floor in the, you know, in the, in the apartment? Because that's the way her mother walked with high heels too. Why did she make Jean Daelman? Uh, why did she take a beautiful actress to play that part because she said people you know at home people think that housewives are are uh, not interesting looking and my mother was beautiful so she keeps coming back to her mother's story all the time Mm -hmm. that this is effectively her mother's story and she's filming it with love this is the primary way the film was approached for extremely many years. And um, she's giving you know yeah so in that sense it's she wants to make it feminine and feminist. I presented this movie a bunch of places actually where the audiences were completely happy with the idea that it was a feminine movie. In other words that it was It was a film that was geared toward trying to present, represent, and through mise en scene, through story, through everything, um, a woman's movements, gestures, uh, trajectory, in a way that was faithful, while while not being, you know, documentary. It was obviously being controlled, but Mm -hmm. that was recognizably female let's Uh say Um, not that all women are the same nor would she say that but this is one
0: where do we go with this the again um, I guess in terms of the movie generally and trying to think in terms of what's happening in the movie if what's happening has uh, importance at all in terms of what's what's going on uh, and happening, and the change of light, as you say, uh, as the the film moves forward, you see the repetitions, the obsessions uh, change a little bit. There's there's definitely some something happening to uh, Jean Delmont. Is what's happening what we're supposed to be trying to understand in the film? Uh, again, I'm not not trying to say it's there's a, a specific meaning I want to get out of it, but rather to say. It, it it is an interesting film in that it doesn't lag in any interesting way. Like I I it isn't boring, even though you could say it's a three hour and twenty minute film where very little actual happens except for these changes and these changes are interestingly tension building and you keep thinking, what what's changing now and why what's gonna happen next? How will this change? Because it's clearly a formal Aspect of it that you see the change, and you see uh, that, as you say, we expect the the washing of the bathtub, but now we're seeing it at a different stage. Um, we expect the certain things to happen, and when they change, it creates that tension. But okay, so you're yeah. saying,
1: how does it go beyond formalism? Sure. Uh, okay, fine. It goes beyond formalism because um, even though it's de-psychologized in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. the story of this woman. Uh, on the other hand, these the control of these movements and the ellipses, like what's left out, is completely geared to her inner state, and we don't know what her inner state is. Um, this is not a movie, and this is typical of Ackerman's work, I would say, this is not a movie, this is not a bottom-line movie. This is not a movie where you're going to know at any particular point what something means, mm-hmm. even the fact that she has prostitution in her life there's no it's just a fact it's not good bad it's not um you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and so li- but 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 i disagree you know with this idea that nothing happens mm-hmm. um which you know some people say because i think that uh things are happening constantly mm-hmm. and that you become trained it's like a training film you can become (laughs) trained at watching every little thing because you don't know which of those little things Mm -hmm. is going to turn out to be important
0: I agree entirely with that it's one of the things that I found most fascinating about it and and, um, I guess uh, one of those things in which uh, I think uh, Ackerman has said in several interviews the, the idea that she didn't want to make mil- movies that you sort of lost your sense of time in, but rather that you re-engaged or found or understood that time was passing, that time is the only thing you have. It's time for a break. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. Our show tonight is about the films of Chantal Ackerman. My guest by telephone is Janet Bergstrom, a professor of cinema and media studies at UCLA. Um When we come back, I'm not sure what we'll do. We've got documentary or more non-narrative films to think about, but also Ackerman's last film, No Home Movie. Uh, Maybe I'll let uh, Janet, you can decide on what we'll talk about in our final segment. The music at the break is I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free, another by Sidney Veeder-Atherton from her album in tribute to Nina Simone. Stay with us for more about the films of Chantal Ackerman when Interchange returns on WFHB. Uh Welcome back to Interchange. This is Doug Storm. Our show tonight, There Is No More Distance, the films of Chantal Ackerman. Our guest is UCLA cinema and media studies professor Janet Bergstrom. She joins us by phone. Uh, In our last segment, we stuck with Jean Dillman, which is um, uh, Chantal Ackerman's 1975 masterpiece. Uh, that um, I guess is universally uh, hailed as a masterpiece. I think, uh, Janet, you may have mentioned to me that uh, in in an earlier telephone call that it was kind of a Citizen Kane moment for her that she would have uh, a lot to sort of work against in the future of her career. So, 75 all the way now to 2015, her last movie, No uh, No Home Movie, so we have a lot in there that we're gonna skip over. Is there Uh, Any particular place you want to go? Do you want to skip into no home movie? Or we have, of course, uh, some of the non-narrative films or more documentary-ish, like From the Other Side, which is about the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, You choose. Uh, Janet, which would you like to do?
1: I think we should uh, talk about From the Other Side. Uh, It's one of her best documentaries, and it's extremely topical today, of course, because... uh, the other side is um, Mexico,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and this side is the U.S., and it's all about a wall uh, that already had gone up, and um, surveillance along that wall, um, surveillance footage that was actually, uh, you know, uh, could be licensed, um, and some interviews with people on both sides, and, uh, Ackerman made a number of documentaries. These were all commissioned films, but this is one of the ones that uh, she liked the best and, and I think is one of her best films, period. Um, hmm. It's very moving. It's very, you know, it has the same... You would not be surprised moving from Jeanne Dielman to From the Other Side in 2002 in terms of framing, camera style sensibility around color, the idea of giving people their own time to speak, to give them the kind of space that they wanted to tell a story, even though in Jean Dielman she doesn't tell a story in words. It's more like the story is internalized and we're trying to figure out what it is. Mm-hmm. But in From the Other Side, she interviews a number of people who talk about their own experiences or their family it's a very much a family movie and about um either somebody from their family trying to cross over uh and having been killed in the process or having been dispossessed by uh, people preying on them on all the people trying to get away from poverty Mm -hmm. Um, we can see the conditions that they're living under which is you know they're trying to Find a better life and trying to maybe send money back to their to their family. Hmm. Um, Do
0: you know who commissioned the film?
1: Um. 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 Yeah, I'm looking at the credits right now. Mm-hmm. A whole bunch of people. Okay. TV Australia. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Finland TV. Denmark TV. Hmm. Um, the French uh, national. CNC, the mm-hmm. French National, whatever, mm. um, and then this this agency that's been that's funded, I think, put money into every single one of her films, which is a Center for Film and Audiovisual, whatever, for the French community in Belgium, as opposed to the Flemish. Mm. Um, they put money in every single one of hers.
0: Do you have a sense? And there's, like, there's,
1: a Europe, there's European money into it, in it, too. And it was made effectively to be shown on TV, um, but it's a feature film. It's an hour and a half. One of the things I want to mention about this film is that um, there are certain set pieces that are just wonderful. Uh, for instance, there's one that takes place in a, um, a you know, like, it looks like a little... Mexican restaurant, and there are people sit, seated at a table, maybe fifteen or twelve people seated at the table, and um, somebody, one, one of the guys among them, uh, at one point he's I think he's asked on camera, um, but he reads a statement and the, that he's written out. He reads it, you know, like from a paper, mm-hmm. and the statement describes. Their situation and what they're trying to do—it's incredibly moving. I—I um, I was on a panel with the um, one of the camera people from that uh, movie here in L.A. recently, Robert Fence, and he told me that. Um, As I wondered, how did they find those people? And but he said that they were driving along, and um, there were these people who were hitchhiking basically they were just walking along this you know dusty road they gave them a ride and they were all starving and um, are really hungry and they took them to the restaurant they all had this dinner and then this guy you know had written his statement and he got up to do it so this isn't something that was in the script or they didn't just happen to be in the restaurant um they were sort of befriended by the this very small you know film crew and that's how that happened another thing that he told me that I didn't know before was something that's very uh, it's probably the most moving part of the whole movie after after you see kind of situation after situation on the south side of the border where you um, see people who are really in need and this kind of I don't know this heartfelt Quality uh, that she brings out when she talks to people or lets, she's very good at bringing people out. Mm -hmm. At the very end, the, the movie changes. There's a, you hear her voice in voiceover, you don't see her. And she's telling the story of a woman who crossed over and became a maid in Los Angeles, I think. And, and then she would send letters home occasionally, and then after a while the letters just stopped coming, and nobody could locate her. And so in the voiceover it's somebody who's going to look for her. But it's like a lost story, you know, of someone who's, who's loved. This just comes through in every single one of the stories. These mm-hmm. people are loved and Lost or loved, and don't know how to get someplace where they can have a a decent life and right. are you know the interviews on the u s side of the border are pretty horrific because they're right in that area where the wall was even in two thousand and two. Um, and uh, you see the surveillance footage, you see people being tracked. you see a road sign like a warning sign uh, that you could, I'm from Wisconsin, you know, you could see that in Wisconsin, like, watch out, a deer could be crossing, you know, the road. Well, here, the icons are, uh, like, a man and a woman with children Mm -hmm. uh, could be crossing the road, and danger because of these people. Right. So and you know people protecting their property with guns and saying you know I have a right to shoot anybody on my property that kind
0: of thing. Right. You're listening to Interchange on WFHB. I'm speaking with Janet Bergstrom, professor of cinema and media studies at UCLA, about the films of Chantal Ackerman. Uh, we're speaking of her documentary from the other side right now. Uh, yeah, that that was. Um, you know, you do. Try, you sort of go from the interviews with uh, people who, as you say, are trying to find a way to improve themselves, their lives in a sense, but improve their towns even, improve their their villages. Uh, the one in particular, I guess it starts out with the uh, a, a, a man and his son are, are wanting to change their circumstances in their town, and they they try hard in their town to change the circumstances, and then feel that they have to go uh, to the United States to make a real difference and, and get, uh, get lost along the way. And it's, as you say, uh, she asks the question, uh, and just waits and and lets the emotion let the people tell their story and it it sort of unfolds in that way it's wonderfully juxtaposed i suppose with the scene of the downed was it the downed uh, immigration officer or a border patrol police or something like that where they're they're um uh, having a funeral memorial service for that person and then you see all the police and border patrols stacked, you know, lined up in, in military dress and um, the guy speaking invokes you know, the words from the Bible, invokes God and and that this is a border war uh, and this is, you know, after you've seen people, you know, basically just needing something to eat. All right. It's, uh, it's, yeah, and the
1: only other thing I wanted to mention about that last section that's different is that uh, what I was told by Robert Fence was that it wasn't planned from the beginning. Mm. And she was uncertain whether or not to include it. When you see the film, I think you think it, it couldn't have not been there. You know, it's, such, it's so important in bringing her personal view and her, you know, this kind of first person... You know, other people make first, what you could call first-person cinema, but she has a particular way of doing it, and that really does it in this particular movie. It's mm-hmm. really beautiful.
0: Well, she's talking at one point to a sheriff, um, Larry Deaver, I think is his name, and about failed policies and... Uh, fa- failed immigration policies and 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 um, how they've failed in a particular way and and at one point you can just hear her off camera say the the woman the uh, you know uh, immigration secretary or what or whatnot she says well she, you know she hasn't never been starving before that's why she thought the policy would be worth worth you know implementing and and the sheriff's like yes you've you've hit it right on the nail you know nail on the head with that um, is that, is this a uh, a kind of movie that, you know, she she makes she makes her kinds of movie out of these particular kinds of situations. I know this um, this is a, f- a four-pack of films that I have. It's a Icarus films, I think, put it out. These, uh, these films are documentaries, I suppose, or movies that are kind of travel-oriented as well, um, from the East in 1993, South in 1999, and down there in 2006. They go from Eastern Europe, Soviet Union, to uh, the South, where... She just kind of happened to be in in Texas. She was going to do a film, apparently, uh, about the American South and discovered, or I guess it was around the time when James Byrd Jr. was murdered in Jasper, Texas, and she she goes there and, and films that situation as well, and down there is a film about Israel. As she
1: retraces the, uh, there's a long shot or a traveling shot where she retraces the road that his body was, where his body was dragged, dragged from a car, mm-hmm. from behind a car along that road. Um, those films are not made to be, you know, a trilogy or mm-hmm. whatever, um, and they're being packaged that way. Um, she's always been interested in fiction films and documentaries and displacement and people uh, looking. With foreign eyes, you know, onto something, or with women, with people being—excuse me—people being removed from the place that they would have been in, and um, probably this is—and she said as much at various times. I mean, you can't always take interviews at face value, but Mm -hmm. you know that her parents were displaced Jews because they um, were—they were Jewish at the wrong time in Poland, uh, and. You know, her mother was in a concentration camp, but she managed to survive that. But um, and this, I guess, brings us to the final movie. And I guess maybe people don't know, but Chantal Ackerman uh, committed suicide not so long after she made this movie. So it's um, it's and when I saw this in L.A., I mean, she had last year. This is 2015. She had only died, I think, I don't know, like a month or two before. And uh, so it was like seeing it in the shadow, you know, of of knowing that, that she had passed away. But it's about her mother trying to communicate with her mother who never, ever would. And Ackerman repeated this umpteen times in interviews. My mother was in a concentration camp and she would never talk about it, you know. And you have the, or one has the impression that she's always speaking, remembering that pain as a child of her mother refusing to speak or not being able to speak about the thing that was the most important thing in her life, and that the child couldn't ask, um, and nobody else could ask either. I mean, because it was obviously so painful. Mm -hmm. So... um, in this movie, though, I mean, she had come a long way Ackerman had in terms of representing her mother indirectly in various ways. And then finally, there was a, a really important installation. It was in Paris and in other places where her mother's on screen, and she talks to her, but not about she doesn't try to talk to her about her experience. She tries to she does talk to her about her, her mother's mother's experience. Um, and that was very interesting. But you see the video. So you see her on screen, I believe, for the first time. But the screen is looked at your position. You're looking through a screen. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like you're looking through a translucent curtain to see the video screen where um, her mother is speaking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of at a remove. Like she can't get at the direct experience. This is the
0: concept here right well there's an interesting thing and i i stole it for the title of the show but uh, where her mother is uh facetiming or skyping with someone in brussels and she the mother at at one point says there's no more distance you're in brussels and i'm in oklahoma and there is no distance and it it's it seemed too perfect really not to to pick it up um there's distance throughout though i mean this is a yeah but
1: there that's her, that's her mother's house. Right,
0: yes, I understand.
1: Ackerman wouldn't have said that because um you can just hear the frustration growing in no home movie, which I highly recommend. Um it's another one of those movies where people people might say, Oh, nothing happens but there's there are things happening throughout and but Ackerman is really trying to engage her mother and to go beyond the um things that she's been hearing all her life, like everything's fine and mm-hmm. How's the, how's your sister? How are the grandchildren like that? Mm. Uh, to a- ask her more about people she knew and what happened to them, and so on. And her mother just doesn't acknowledge those questions at all. Mm. Uh, so there's ultimate distance. But you know, it's it's very thought provoking. Mm. And then and then her mother died not that long after. And then Chantal, you know, took her own life. Not that long after her mother died, so you know it's a the whole thing is a really sad story uh, about and from I've written about this in terms of um, children of survi- children of survivors of the Holocaust. There's a syndrome of children of survivors uh, that Ackerman was very familiar with, and she met lots of other ones where um, they they felt bereft and they felt both ultimate love and ultimate a kind of splitting where they felt both love and aggression toward that same person because um they never were allowed to they they were almost ignored uh because that person's whole life in a way was wrapped up in uh, that
0: traumatic past right. Wait, I gotta cut you off, I'm sorry uh, Janet oh, that's no. all the time <laughs> that's, all, that's all the time we have, if you want to know more about what Janet's talking about she's got an essay in the book Endless Night that she edited, Endless Night Cinema and Psychoanalysis, Parallel Histories it's a great essay in there called Splitting, uh, that's all the time we have thanks to Janet Bergstrom for speaking with us by telephone from uh, uh, su- Southern California about the films of Chantel Ackerman, thanks Janet
1: you're most welcome. Thanks for inviting
0: me. We'll close with the final song off of Little Girl Blue from Nina Simone by frequent Ackerman collaborator, cellist Sonia Viter atherton This one is Return Home. Next time on Interchange, the things that speak our lives. I'm joined in the studio by John Kay to discuss his most recent book, Folk, Art, and Aging. His book makes the strong point that growing old doesn't have to be seen as an eventual failure, but rather as an important developmental stage of creativity. Meaningful memory project. Meaningful memory project. Oh, for heaven's sakes. Meaningful memory projects serve as a lens for focusing on remaking and sharing the long ago the things that speak our lives next time on interchange tuesdays at 6 p.m on wfhb i'm doug storm thanks for listening i produce interchange rob Schoon is assistant producer and jennifer brooks is our board engineer joe crawford is executive producer stay tuned for the jazz menagerie coming up next right here on your community radio station wfhb